Father, thank you again for your word and God, uh, the time with you this morning and the time together. And we got asked that you would continue to be here, that Lord, your word would uh, be your word and not my word, and that your word would have its way in us this morning, that you would teach us and instruct us in the ways of righteousness and God, how we can uh, love you. But God, show us your face, we pray, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so back in Genesis, uh, obviously Genesis, God and man, we've seen a lot of the ways that God's interacted with man. And we're going to see that today, even though we're looking at a genealogy. I think that there are a few things we can glean out of here that um, really kind of stand, they stood out to me this time reading through. You know, I've read through uh, this part of Genesis, uh, I would say at least several times, probably more than that, way more than that, um, in the short time I've been saved. But um, stuff stuck out to me. I said, oh, wow, you know, in light of what we've been studying, the light of what we've seen in previous chapters, it's interesting how God decides to phrase things, even in a genealogy and what we can get out of it. But we've seen what's relevant to man from God's perspective. And when I say man, I mean humanity. You guys know that. You know, someone in the world might be triggered and be like, what? You know, I was out at lunch with my dad yesterday. I went to the bathroom and said, restrooms, God bless you. And the door said, men. And I was like, I'm triggered. I'm offended. <laughs> you know, I joke, but it's sincere. sincerely, it's messed up out there. Um, but anyway, last time we saw Cain's fate, uh, his family, and his feudal legacy. We saw how uh, Lamech, his great-great-great-grandson, uh, was a bit full of himself, and how that was really the end there. God just said, I'm going to show you what's down this path, and that there's nothing there. Um, and, you know, the, really, I think that we can see that the failures of a generation lead to future generations even further astray, that our failures can lead our children's failures to be even farther astray from God. You know, uh, anytime you see a broken family and the Lord hasn't redeemed yet or worked in yet, um, or they haven't allowed him to work yet, we see, you know, alcoholism that, that transpires, or infidelity, or, you know, just whatever the case may be, the sins of the fathers repeat of the generations, because the kids see that and they say, well, dad did that, so I'm going to do that plus that. It's like we leave a foundation the next generation, if our foundation is awful, the next generation's foundation will be even worse. Uh, you know, the idea of standing on the backs of giants, you know, if, if we're a giant in righteousness, then we've given our kids in the next generation, whether they're our kids or kids at youth group or church or wherever, um, a good foundation for them to stand on. But if we're giants in sin, well, I, I'm sure they'll be just as professional as we are in it, um, and hopefully not. But we saw the cost of doing things our own way. That there's a great cost, and a lot of times it costs us, but um, more than that, it costs others around us, especially those uh, that we have care of. This morning, uh, what is your family history? Have you gone on Ancestry.com or whatever those websites are? You know, like my mom and her sister have put in their saliva to get their DNA results back. You know, and it's like, it's, it's entertainment. How, how accurate is it? Um, you know, what's your heritage? Um, you know, uh, Hudson Heritage, Federal Credit Union, you know, what's, what's your heritage? Is it the Hudson Valley? Is it, is it something deeper than that? How about your current family? You know, what's, what's it like in your current family? What's the state of redemption in your current family or irredemption? I made that up, I think. But where and how do you fit into your family, into your generation, into your family line? Um, and do you fit in or are you the black sheep for a good reason or for bad reason? Um, but what example are we living and leaving 
for the next generation. When the next generation looks at us, what example you and me personally have? I mean, we can kind of think, and it's much easier to think about the example someone else is leaving, much easier to look at someone else and point the finger and blame, or look and say, oh, look how good they are, or whatever the case may be, but to look at ourselves and wonder, what really is my legacy? You know, I'm going to be 36 soon. I think I just had a palpitation, but that means that 40 is not much further. And really, you know, that quintessential midlife crisis. I've been going through that since I was 25, I think. But sincerely, you begin to wonder, well, what is my legacy? You know, I've been walking so far, so long, or maybe not so far, maybe not so long, and man, what, what really is my trajectory? There's only so many more course changes in my life that are going to happen before my life is over. You know, it's, I mean, I've got plenty of life left, but really, sincerely, I think we need to think about that. We need to, we need to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom, as the scripture says. But are we going, I, I'm trying to phrase this because I wrote it down as a note, but I'm trying to phrase it here, but is it really a further curse or the Father's course? Are we a further course like Cain, where we further our own course and we further the curse that's upon us to where we've now shunned it and said that that's not a curse, that it's a blessing in our life and we end up having Lamechs? Or are we going the Father's course, where we've shunned our own way, we've counted our own way rubbish, and we decided to go whichever way the Father would lead us? And that's always the best course, guys. It doesn't always seem like the best course. Sometimes we disagree with it, like our kids sometimes disagree with the course of action we're taking. Daddy, why aren't you driving? Well, the light is red, sweetie. Daddy, go faster. I can't, son. There's a school bus in front of me. You know, like, sometimes the, the pace of the Father, the course of the Father is not the pace of the course that we're desiring or we think is right at any given moment, but we have, you know, not like that silly song, Jesus take the wheel, but sincerely, we have no business touching the wheel. It's his wheel. It's, we just need to sit in the back and have our sippy cup and go along and, and go where he would have us go because if he's our father and he's a good father, well, he knows where he's going. He's seen the end from the beginning, so we just need to hang on and trust him and enjoy uh, the ride with him to make a really flaky analogy there. But Genesis 5 today, we're going to be in, and the, the title of today's message is God Took Him. That him is Enoch, but God took him. God took him. Let's read uh, the first five verses together, and we'll, uh, we'll get into, uh, hopefully, some meat and potatoes here. Genesis 5, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, or in the King James Version it says, God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 2, he created them male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters, so that all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. I wonder if he was glad that he died in 930. But you can whip out this chart that I printed out for you and keep it handy as we go through this. Again, I don't, you know, all the extraneous text on here is pointing to something that's I probably wouldn't get into or read or it's probably erroneous. But I think that they had the best skills when it came to drawing a chart. All the other charts that are out there, one was cutesy, it had like long beards. 
I was like, oh, that's cute. Mario would appreciate that. But like, <laughs> but it really wasn't. It really didn't convey the information in a good way. And I think that this chart conveys it in a good way, where we see the overlap. We see how old they were in green when they when they had the sun that's mentioned here, and then how long they lived. Uh, additionally, after that, and then the year that they died, and then the overlap. I think it's really good if you want to get in and see the details there. Um, and it goes all the way up to Joseph. Um, but here in Genesis, we start getting into a genealogy. We have the first genealogy. The Bible has several genealogies, stuff like we see in Matthew and other places. Um, you know, like I mentioned, like Ancestry.com, you can go back and kind of get your, your genealogy. Maybe you know where they came from. I remember in history class, or was it social, U.S. history or something? I don't remember, but in high school we had to do some ancestry, and I was able to get back to the mid-1800s. That's as far back as I could go just through family memory. Um, a different people, and there was a blacksmith, and there was other guys, I think farmers and stuff, but it was interesting. Um, but uh, here we see in the genealogy, it says, in the book of genealogy of Adam, in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And I think in that day, obviously it's the literal day, but also in that same day, that same moment, man was made in the image of God. When God created Adam and Eve, there was nothing left to do to make them look like God. They looked like God enough to be a likeness of his image. Uh, there wasn't anything else that God had to do. There wasn't an upgrade down the line. There wasn't a version 2.0 to come to say, I mean, there was Jesus really, but uh, there was, for them, it was they were made. They were made in perfection. They were made in creation. They were made in a good environment without sin. And they were to look like God. And their relationship was to be a picture of God. Um, and it wasn't a long process. But now I think we have to go on, we have to undergo a long process. We're in a fallen world. We carry the burden of sin. Sin dwells within us, like the, the Bible says, and we have to put it to death in our members daily. But also, the genetic code has kind of been corrupted a little bit. We don't live that long anymore. We get sick. We have all these other things that go on. We're not, we're not as smart. I mean, I don't know about you, but I didn't invent uh, being a metal worker, you know? Everything I kind of learned, I learned from someone else. I haven't really made up anything new yet. Um, and if I have, it probably hasn't worked. It's been dumb. But... We have this imperfection in us, and we have to undergo sanctification as believers. We're, we're made in the image of God, but we're not children of God until God saves us. And when God saves us, yes, right away we're, we're, we're still in the likeness of God. We, are, you know, we need to respect and love each other because we're images of God, and you know, we represent God in a sense. But sincerely, our lives don't look like God when we first get saved. When we first get saved, we probably look the least like God. And that's why we got saved, because we realized... Man, I'm not the way I should be. This isn't the way life should be. My relationship with God is not the way it should be. And so God begins to sanctify us over the rest of our life and begins to make us more and more into the likeness of his son. And, uh, you know, it's not like the Catholics think of works and death and then, you know, sort of the survivor American Idol mentality. You'll get voted in later as a saint, you know, sanctification. Um, or a, But really, that's life, that we're going to go through it and we're going to be made in the image of God because we are saints. We're not made into saints. We are saints, and we're made into better pictures of God as saints. Uh, Philippians 2, 12-13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We may have uh, picked up this verse uh, recently as well, but for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, that God is making us into his likeness. But we have a responsibility to play there. We need to be a part of that. You know, it's interesting back here in Genesis that it says that uh, the King James Version where it says mankind, it's, it's Adam. That the name Adam was Adam's name, 
but it also meant man. That in Adam was also this picture of the fatherhood of all of people. That Adam's name would carry on. Adam, man, mankind would carry on. It's interesting how in these last days, everything's trying to be erased. Every foundational principle, all the way back to creation, is being erased and being taken away. Um, you know, uh, I guess it's 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven, not made of dust, not made of anything. He's always existed. You know, that, that God started it, and he gave a picture of us in Adam, but even then, he was just saying, this is just a picture. It's a shadow of the things to come. Like, we look at the temple, and we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system as shadows of things to come, and the feasts of what heaven's going to be like, and what redemption, how the inner workings of redemption work through sacrifice and blood and sprinkling and covering and washing and you know, purity, you know, we were reading the names of God to Mia the other night, and she loved it, and she asked us to read them again a couple of times, but I told her, you know, in the old days, when the scribes used to write down the Bible, that whenever they got to the Word of God, they would have to get a fresh pen and fresh ink, they would have to wash and do a ceremonial cleansing before they wrote Yahweh, before they wrote the Lord, because they understood that God's name was holy, and that there was a picture of that in here. And thankfully, we don't have to do that anymore, you know, we can just control P, and we have you know, whatever we want printed out of the Bible. Um, but sincerely, there was a shadow of things to come, and it struck me that Adam was the first of these shadows of things to come. That in Adam was a picture, a likeness of God in Adam and Eve. And yet, he wasn't a perfect picture because he couldn't save us. He doomed us. But the last Adam, the best perfect picture of God was who? God himself. Jesus was the living image of the invisible God. And if we want to see God, Jesus says, we need to see him. We need to see him. But it says that God created them male and female. That Sorry, guys. Don't really apologize to you guys, but if anyone's listening or whatever, there's two genders. That physicality and mentality are linked, whether you like it or not. And I know that there's people with issues. I know that there's uh, a training circumstances that might make one think otherwise. But in reality, God doesn't make mistakes like that. There's birth defects and there's other issues, but there's male and there's female. And what you are on the outside is what you are on the inside. And what you are on the inside is what you are on the outside. No matter how much money you pay, no matter what the doctor tells you, you're you. And you're male or you're female. And even, you know, I understand there's other birth defects that can cause a confusion with that sometimes, but I guarantee that there's evidence there for one or the other. You know, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches and saints. You know, it is any wonder who has written and prescribed the confusion of our age, even over the most obvious of things, boy or girl. It's none of the enemy. The enemy has written this confusion. The fact that we would be confused over what gender we are, how many genders there are, it's a waste of time. And more than that, it's a tragedy. What a tragedy to be so confused in life, so confused spiritually, I guarantee mentally you're not confused. It's a spiritual confusion that you don't know which one you are. And it's tragedy. My heart breaks for people who are stuck in that. It's like, no, no, you're missing it. You've. It's like, and that's what the enemy wants. They're so tangled up in that. How far are you from understanding a spiritual truth 
If you're so caught up in such an elemental physical truth that you're confused over the simplest things, how are you going to handle the more complicated things in life? And we see that. We see morality just destroyed. Society is destroyed. If I were to go say this on New York City streets, I'd probably be killed. And CNN would say, well, he kind of deserved it. It's a hate crime. No, I don't hate you. I love you. You need to understand that you don't need to be confused. That God does not want you to be confused. You don't need to have a messed up life. I believe it's that confusion is the deliberate attempt to keep us distracted from the truth. And that truth is God. If we're so caught up in confusion over simple things, we'll never get to the important things. It's like in life, you know, you, you're, like you're working or you're doing something and you get sidetracked. You know, when we were out doing stuff the other week, we went to the store, went to Walmart to get one thing, but then we're like, oh, I need to get a fan or I need to get this. And it's like, I gotta, I gotta focus here because otherwise we're gonna walk out of here, go to Chili's, come back and be like, well, are you doing something? Because we got caught up in little things because there was such an overload. But Jesus said in John 3.12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? God wants us to understand heavenly things but if we can't handle the physical, earthly things right in front of us, we're never going to understand the spiritual things that take a little more discernment. You know, if you can't handle that you're just a boy or a girl, and it's that obvious, how are you going to handle things that take real discernment? Like, what should I do with my life? Are these friends good for me or not? More than that, what's going to happen after I die? You know, we're going to be so caught up texting while we're driving that we're going to end up crashing and killing someone or even ourselves because we were caught up in something that really had no business being there while we were doing while we were driving. Again, another weak analogy, but I think you get the point. First Corinthians uh, two fourteen says, "But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned." That, that God wants us to receive the things of God. He doesn't want us to shove it down our throats. He wants us to receive them because they are good. Like when the waiter comes over and gives you your food, you receive it with gladness. Yes, please. Oh, I didn't order that. But if you did order it, and it is the good thing for you, well, you receive it. You receive it. And that's what God wants to have us for. Otherwise, we're going to go hungry. And it's amazing to even say that we need God's Spirit just to discern the simple things like genders. It's amazing that it requires the Bible and Scripture and Christians to say, no, there's only two. That tells me that the deception of this age is very great. And that the days are closer to being over than I like to think about sometimes. That the deception is so great, it says, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That, yeah, there's going to be false prophets, false Christs. And I don't even necessarily think they're going to be religious prophets sometimes. I think it's going to be the prophets of science. This is the way it is. I'm not saying that's what Jesus is actually saying here. I don't think that's right. The final form is obviously going to be a false religious prophet, a false one who says worship the Antichrist. You know, it's obviously going to have this final form. You know, just like there's types of Christ and types of Antichrist. Um, you know, there's pictures. Uh, you know, sort of like Hitler was like a type of Antichrist, but he wasn't the full picture of one. You know, obviously he didn't fit the bill for all of them. I think the same thing in our society. There's false teachers. And they don't always have to be spiritual teachers, and they, they deceive us. And it says, he says, Jesus says, if possible, even the elect. And I have to wonder, is it possible? 
Is it possible that the elect would be deceived? And I would say, look around. The elect are deceived. Big time. I, I mean, I look around more and more every day, even in the past 15 years of being saved, 14 years, whatever it is, like, the church has gotten so deceived. And I don't think it's me just necessarily waking up to it more. I think it's more, the church is getting more and more deceived. There's more and more false teachers, false doctrines, whack stuff. I mean, even some of the stuff, the songs that we sang a couple weeks ago, I watched a clip of the pastor of the church, I'm like, I'm like laughing because this guy's like Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Like, no. You know? I, like, I heard it before and I knew it. I just kind of pushed it off because, you know, the music was all right. But it's like, it's nuts. I think sin, relevance, the emergent church, going back to old practice, dead practice, ecumenicalism without discernment, seeking experience rather than God, um, you know, the babies in the faith, not growing up, sermonettes for Christianettes, social justice instead of spiritual justice. The church is so caught up in, oh, they don't have enough money, or they don't have enough this, and, well, spiritually, what do they need? They need Jesus. They don't need a handout. A handout can be good, and you can use that, but that's not the prime need. You're taking uh, a worldly idea and putting a spiritual label on it, and it's it's spirit of the Antichrist. There's false doctrines. There's divisions, Eastern mysticism, I'll step on toes, yoga in the church, yoga taught at the church. Go talk to anyone who's come out of India or come out of where yoga's come and gotten saved, and they'll say, what are you doing? It's not exercise. Maybe it, maybe it is in a way, like physically, but sincerely, are there other ways you can stretch that aren't related to Hinduism? Take it, if, if you disagree, take it for a word. I'm not going to put a trip on anyone, but... Let's look around and be realistic here. If the days aren't shortened, I don't know that even the entire church wouldn't be deceived. Because it's pretty close. It's pretty close. I mean, it's like, you try and find a, a Christian artist who isn't involved with someone who's totally whack or totally gone, and, you know, oh, oh maybe I can't listen to them. Oh, I'll listen to them. I don't really know anything about their life because I know how to find something. Or divisions in the church, church leadership, you expect to be strong and healthy and good, and you find out what else is going on, and you go, what? What? Like, even the past couple years, I'm like, Lord, like, I know I can't do this on my own, but is there any place I can go that's, like, <laughs> not messed up? And I know that we're all messed up, and I know that that's the case, but it's like, I feel like it's more of an epidemic today than it's, than it's ever been. And I don't mean, I don't mean to, to, to dog the church. You know, we are the church. I want the church to just, myself included, wake up and be aware that we, all of us can be deceived and that we don't want to be deceived. Why? Because it is the last days, guys. I, I, like, I always thought that, and that's what got me saved. I started reading Revelation, and God used that. You know, God had me read Revelation and everything. But now that I'm looking around, I'm going, this is way scarier than I thought it was going to be. Like, this is way more... Last days, and I thought it was going to be. It's always kind of darker than you expect it to be. It's always kind of, you know, I think sometimes we think it's going to be this dystopian society, all dark and sci-fi. And you look around, and you kind of go, I think Ashley and I were talking while we were watching the, the election last year, like, if anyone else in history saw this, or this was in a movie to us, wouldn't we go, wow, that's crazy. Like, the stuff that their government is doing, the, the news is saying, people are saying, people are doing, you know, you see it anywhere else. You go, like, you see stuff that goes on in Venezuela or in other countries around the world, you go, oh, that's messed up. But you see it here and you kind of buy into it. It's, uh, it's crazy. But anyway, things are like, the day, like they were in the days of Noah, and we're about to get to Noah's birth here. 
You know, the enemy has wrought deception even down to very creation, and now the very image of God. He's attacked it all the way down to the image of God. He brought about uh, evolution in the past couple centuries, and now the people have kind of bought that hook, line, and sinker, and they're starting to not buy it anymore, and they realize, oh, we do need a creator, so they're setting it up for the Antichrist to come, but he tax it even to the image of God. Say, oh, well, you're not, you can be whatever you want to be. You're, you know, you're fluid, all this other stuff where... He's like, I don't, I don't want any image of God anywhere, and you guys are the image of God. It's not creation that's the biggest image of God. It's you and me that's the image of God. And not that we're special, we're just dust, but hear me out. That's why the enemy is attacking it. That's why the enemy is doing this, because we look like God, naturally. And we're just about there, guys. I mean, look at North Korea. Look at Iran. Look at Russia. Wait, isn't that Gog and Magog? Isn't that what's talked about in the scripture? The U.S., well, is the U.S. in there or not? You can make arguments for both ways. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the rapture is going to happen and then America is going to destroy it. I unfortunately think that it might happen the other way around. But we have the EU, the UN, cashless society, global surveillance, you know, biotechnology, all this other stuff that's not necessarily the mark of the beast yet. But you can see how everything for the last days is coming together. And the biggest one is the greatest, the falling away is happening first, Jesus said. And look at the amount of people that are falling away from true faith to false faith, and they call it Christianity. Judgment is coming, guys. You know, I, I don't know how the tribulation is going to be worse than this. Like, I do, but I feel like all that's left is the stuff to fall out of the sky. And the... Hey, baby girl. Need something? Okay. You know, there's not much left. But I think we're getting more of a revelation study, so let's get back into Genesis. We see here in these first few verses that Cain and Abel are not mentioned here. You know, I think number one, Abel's line was snuffed out, as we saw. But number two, Cain's line was divergent and unfruitful, and it comes to an end. So when it comes to this genealogy, neither of them have a bearing on the long-term genealogy for it. They're, they're, a foot, they're not, not quite a footnote. They're, you know, the first picture. But we see that neither of them have anything to do with the, the promised line. You know, uh, Cain's line was inconsequential to the promise because he forfeited it. We see here that Seth was born when Adam was 130. You know, we don't we don't really know the ages when Cain and Abel were born. Uh, maybe someone does, but I, I don't know it. But again, before the flood, there was different times. I mean, can you imagine being 130 and having your first kid? <laughs> I, mean, I was in my 30s when we had our kids. I'm like, I know why God wants you to have kids young. <laughs> you know, think about that white. Uh, my wife is younger than me because uh, it's more strength than me. But, you know, before the flood, was different times. You know, there's chemicals. I was looking up last night, like a bag for my trip. Hey, buddy. Looks good. Still in your room, okay? Keep watching your movie. But I was reading, and there's like the disclaimer on like a bag was chemicals in this, blah, 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 are known in the state of California to cause cancer, birth defects, etc. I'm like, man. Why is everything going to have be made of something that California thinks is going to kill us? But, you know, I read another article about lead, lead levels in baby food. Like, you know, this world, we're falling apart. Is, is it any wonder we all die um, with all this stuff going on? But said that uh, he had sons and daughters, that there are plenty more people being born and multiplying. You know, uh, that in this time there are people coming and more and more coming, and I have something later uh, about that. But it says that Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image, Seth. And Seth meant compensation, if we remember. That's interesting that it says that Seth was in his own likeness. Maybe he looked like him. 
while the others are more like his mom or just a mix. I don't know. But I think it was also a redemptive story for Adam. That just as God made Adam in God's image and Adam failed, God said, well, it's not Cain and Abel who it's going to come through. It's going to come through Seth, the one who's in your image, Adam. Just like you're in my image, the one who I'm going to choose to bring the messianic line through is the one who's in your image. That God would allow that. That this failed picture, this failed portrayal of the image of God, God redeems that and says, I'm going to use your image to bring the Messiah about. And I think that that's grace. And that's personal grace with the Lord. That God will work things out in us that will personally bless us in our relationship with Him as we follow Him. That even in the places of our greatest failure, God can redeem and bring a picture of His grace and a picture of His Son through that place of greatest failure. I think sometimes that's what it takes. But like we were talking about the other day, you know, when God works, I believe it's fruitful in all directions. And that's one way to kind of tell it's God. It's like a flower. It's got petals on all sides. It blesses you, blesses me, blesses those around me. It blesses this in my life and that in my life that is alive on all sides and from all angles. And I think, in a way, I think 1 Timothy 5.18 is related here. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The laborer is worthy of his wages. That God was giving this grace to Adam. They were having faith in him. And he was blessing them in that. As they walked in faith and as they trusted God, God was feeding them through that. A lot of times when we walk in faith, yeah, we're obeying God, but I think God feeds us through that. That as we walk in faith, we receive of that. And God, God begins to feed us as we tread out the grain. I think David understood that when he ate the showbread. When he wasn't supposed to, he understood a deeper truth there, that God cares more about his people than he does about some ornamental bread in the temple. Or Solomon. I mean, think about this. Solomon, the greatest a king, you know, the wisest king ever. Um, it's, you know, it's debatable how the end of his life goes. But who was Solomon? He was David's son, right? But with who? Rahab. The second son of Rahab. You know, he took the throne. That through David, one of David's biggest failures came one of God's biggest blessings, his son Solomon. I think that God is going to work out his grace in us, not only for others to be fed, blessed or shown his face, but that we might see God more clearly, even in the barren, the hurt, and the failed places. That that's where I think we're going to see God the most time sometimes. That God has to has to allow these things to happen in our lives, and it's really more our doing than anything. You know, David's failure was David's fault, but in that, God was so gracious enough to allow grace to be there. Yeah, he could have built a temple later on in life, but he gathered things for him, and he allowed Solomon to build the temple. That's grace there. You know, God, you know, if it was me, I would say... David, too late, you know. We're going to go about this another way. Certainly not going to bless this relationship you have here. It was wrong to begin with, and in my eyes it's always been wrong. God says, no, it's wrong to begin with. I dealt with it. You repented. I'm going to work in it now, and I'm going to use it now. And that's the Lord. That's the Lord. You know, Adam and Eve repented in a sense. They looked to God to keep his promise, even at age 130, when Seth was born. I don't know how many years it was between Seth and... Cain and Abel, maybe it was a couple, maybe it was 100 years, maybe it was 129 years, I don't know. But they looked to God, and they trusted God. You know, did they have other kids before that? You know, maybe it depends on the timeline of Cain, when they were born and not, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, we're not really told that. But maybe there was some serious time there. There was wondering, there was waiting. There was maybe a feeling of not worthy, a feeling of being lost and mourning their sons. But of looking ahead, you know, I think of Abraham and Sarah. Like God promised them, but they had to wait. They had to wait for it to happen. And sometimes it, it may take a while 
for us to receive what God has promised us. And it's not of our own doing sometimes. Sometimes it's just the way things have to happen. But let's go on, uh, verse 6, and we're going to read all the way through 20. It says, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh, and after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Uh, Slow how simple it is. And he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. Verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahaliel. And after he begot Mahaliel, Canaan lived 840 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days were Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And again, it doesn't mean that this is necessarily their firstborn. It just means that this is the one that's involved in this lineage that the Bible is directing us to care about. Um, in verse 15, Mahaliel lived 65 years, and we got Jared. And if we got Jared, Mahaliel lived 830 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. Uh, I noticed a little theme going on here. Jared lived 162 years, and we got Enoch. And after he got Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 uh, years, and you guessed it, he died. I'm going to stop there for right now. You know, we see people living around 900 plus years at this time. You know, I think that that seems extremely absurdly long to us, and I think from our perspective, it probably is absurdly long. But remember, before sin, God didn't intend for us to die. He intended us for, to be immortal, you know, to eat from the tree of life, and yet that's why he kicked us out of the garden, that we wouldn't eat from it. You know, I think that death is both the consequence of sin, and it's also a mercy of God. You know, in Revelation we see that um, uh, people are going to want to die for a period. They're going to be stung by this thing. They're going to want to die. People are going to try and take their own lives, but they can't die. That the power of death is taken from the earth for a time, period. So I think Chuck Smith taught on this once, and he was picturing, like, People, you know, just think of all the ways people try and commit suicide or get hurt and they're not dying. Like, you know, God takes that mercy from us from a time in the future. But here, we're allowed to have the mercy of death. Because in one way, death is a consequence as a result of sin. Death only came about by sin. But I think it's mercy that we wouldn't be stuck in that sin forever. But given a way out through Jesus' victory over death. That we have a resurrection after death. That we don't have to live forever in this world. Thank God. You know, I feel bad for the guys that have lived 930 years. We got it easy. We bow out 70, maybe 80 years, maybe a little longer. You know, I've been reading about people dying in their hundreds now. You know, and they're like, eat bacon every day of their life, you know. James will live to be 400, you know. <laughs> God bless them. But sincerely, I think it's a mercy of God to say, hey, I'm cutting this short. I'm going to get you guys out of here as soon as I can. And, and uh, make a decision quick before you die, please. You know, imagine how set in your ways you'd be at 930. You know, you see old cranky men at 70 are set in their ways, or cranky guys in their 30s, <laughs> you know. Um, but it says that they, had, they all had other sons and daughters. And I have a link here from Answers in Genesis, but I'm just going to read real quick. It says, let us start in the beginning with one male and one female. Now let us assume that they marry and have children, and that their children marry and have children, and so on. And let us assume that the population doubles every 150 years. Now, they say that this is a loose estimate. Therefore, after 150 years, there will be four people. After another 150 years, there will be eight people. After another 150 years, there will be 16 people, and so on and so on. And again, it says, it should be noted, this growth rate is actually very conservative. 
Uh, even, even in reality, with disease, famines, and natural disasters, the world population currently doubles every 40 years or so. And this is just saying doubling every 150 years, so like three times as long. So it's saying, even at this slow, slow rate that they're saying here, not the reality rate, after 32 doublings, which is nearly 4,800 years, the world population would have reached almost 8.6 billion. That's, I mean, this is a couple years old, so it's saying it's two billion more. It's about a, a billion more than there are now on Earth, or a billion and a half more. And this was reported by the Census Bureau. Uh, the simple calculation shows that starting with Adam and Eve, and assuming the conservative growth rate previously mentioned, the current population can be reached well within 6,000 years. That it's, it's no imagination where Cain's wife came from. You're having kids, and they're having kids, and they're having kids, and you live in a, a perfect world, a, well, not a perfect world, but a better world. And you're healthier, you're living longer, there's not much else to do, except eat, sleep, and have kids, and, you know, there's, death is there, but there's no taxes yet, so, you're living longer, things are good. But sincerely, you know, the population is, is growing, and God's focusing on this one line, and a population that's not 40 people, but thousands, maybe even millions of people, even more than that, by the time Noah gets around. Let's go on, verse 21. Through 24, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. So he seemed pretty young compared to these other guys that have, his, have Methuselah here. Uh, but after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So again, you know, these could have been the firstborn of each of them, but, uh, you know, it's just as possible it's not. Um, you know, like we saw earlier, Cain and Abel are the firstborn, but they're not the ones mentioned here. Um, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, we see Methuselah uh, is the oldest guy ever. You know, he's 967 years, whatever it is. And Enoch had a right relationship with God. You know, remember what God wanted in the garden? He wanted to meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And what did Enoch do? He walked with God. He had a right relationship with God. You know, I think that our lives need to be a walk, that each step is in the direction of faith in God. You know, not perfect, but walking. And I ask, is our, is our, are our lives marked by steps of faith? Or are you just known for being the oldest guy in the block? The oldest bump on a log, so to speak. The oldest guy in the rocker on the porch. Or is your life a life of faith? And I think it's okay if we're getting lapped. Uh, I remember playing... Uh, Mario Kart as a kid, my kids have been playing that, and, and you know they're still a little too young to understand how to how to drive it, so they end up getting lapped and turned around and stuff. And that's okay; they're just you know at their age. But I think if we're getting lapped in life, that's okay in a sense, as long as we keep moving forward. You know, obviously it's better to run the way, run the run the race, and run it correctly to try and win it. But even if you're getting lapped, keep going the right way. I remember that scene in uh, Indiana Jones where he's got to walk out on the blocks and they're all letters and he steps out on he's got a, steps out on the J and it falls out and he goes, Oh, that's right. In in Latin, Jehovah spelled with an I and he, he walks out on the letters and he's able to make it across this big pit. And I think that, that needs to be our lives, not so much Indian Jones, but every step of faith on the Word of God and being sure that when the Word of God tells me something, I can step on it. Even if everything around me says that uh, I can't step on it. Because I can't step on everything around me. I can only step on what's right in front of me and what God's word is for me in front of me. I think it's interesting also that Enoch lived 365 years. You know, we know that there's around 365 days in a year. And 
you know, you could go to the whole debate before the flood, were days longer or shorter, and based on all these different things, but uh, I think it's interesting they lived 365 years. You know, for 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, as it also says in the Psalms. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, while the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Again, thinking about the end times, there should be a, there should be a, a walk in us, a change in us. I, it got me saved because I realized, I don't want to go on that. I want to be judged. I'm, I don't want to die. I, you know, I, want, I need to go the way of God. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That as we walk with God, we need to be aware of the end times, and that should, again, be some, like some sort of flame in our life saying, no, you need to live holy, because judgment is coming, because you're saved, and it's what you should be doing. And you need to walk towards that. And when you begin to think about going another way, you realize that, hey, the end is coming. And you need to be aware of it. Whether it's the end of the world or just the end of your life. But this word walk, it means to walk, traverse, walk about. It means manner of life. It means to proceed or move or go away. You know, I was talking yesterday. I went out to lunch with my dad yesterday. And we were talking about, you know, all the moves that we made as a family, uh, my family. And he was just asking about it and seeing what my mindset was on, on all of it. And, uh, you know... And it was a really good conversation. But I have to think, is moving all the time really that bad if it's God who's leading? You know, the world doesn't want to move all the time. I don't want to move all the time. I'm like, Lord, just one more time, maybe two more times, and that's it. Can we just chill for a while? <laughs> you know? Um, but sincerely, this isn't my home. Even if, I've, even if God brings us to a place to settle us down for the rest of our lives, and I don't think it would be the rest of our lives. I always feel like God's going to move us at some point. You know, you see people move around God all the time. But even if that was the case, this isn't my home. I still got one more move to make. There's always one more move to make, and that's home to heaven. So, you know, like anytime Ashley and I talk about moving, I'm like, you throwing stuff out yet? <laughs> like, should we do something? Like, you throw find stuff to throw out <laughs> because I don't want to move it. <laughs> it costs money. It's labor. I sweat. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to be there. But sincerely, it's not that bad. You know, the world wants to just sit and move and not go anywhere and do their thing. Or they, or on the flip side, they just want to keep moving and keep moving and never settle down and never, you know, really take responsibility for things. And again, there's nothing wrong with traveling, but I think that there's this dichotomy there, you know. And again, are our permanent roots on this earth? No. We're going to be living a tent life, like the scripture says. First Peter 4, uh, 2.11, 2.11. <laughs> Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. And... Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind to things above, not on things of earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if our mind is in heaven, and we're constantly aware that we want to, you know, we're trying to be constantly aware that we're moving towards heaven, that if God wants us to move on earth as our next step in moving towards heaven, well, let's move on earth. Let's move again. You know, if that's the way God wants it to be, then, then who am I to, to want to do it other way? Otherwise, I'm not saying you have to move to be spiritual, or if you don't move, you're not spiritual. I'm just saying be spiritual enough to move if God wants you to move. 
or not to move if it doesn't look spiritual. Sometimes people move saying that it's spiritual and it's just them wanting to get away from responsibility. But anyway, do not lay up for yourselves. Jesus says, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for neither moth and rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants our treasure to be in heaven. God wants our favorite appliances to be in heaven, our favorite toys, our favorite movies, all to be in heaven. That way we want to go there. It's like when you're at work, you want to go home because it's work. It's not your couch. It's not your TV. It's not your kitchen. It's not whatever. It's not your pool. You want to go home. Even when you go to a friend's house or a vacation, it's really nice to go, it'd be cool to live here, but I don't live here. So I want to go home. Even though my home is not as nice as this, I just want to go home. You know, like the signs you see on 95 sometimes says, you know, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think that's what God wants for us, you know? If we just lived in heaven, we'd be home by now. We know, you know, we know where we got to be. And I think, again, not that settling down is wrong. That's where God has you. But it shouldn't be the goal. And I think that's the difference with the world and us. The world has a goal to settle down, have a McMansion. The goal is the career in their life. But again, it's not wrong to have a career. It's not wrong to have a McMansion. But... It's supposed to be a tool to further God's goals for you, to fuel your journey towards heaven, so to speak, to finance your life and ministry. Your job, God gave it to you, that you can continue being a Christian and continue to minister to other people by meeting your bills. Because if you're so caught up and trying to meet all your bills and do all these things, how are you ever going to minister to anyone else? And I think that that's why God wants us to be responsible with these things and to be in the world. And again, how sometimes how are you going to be in the world unless you have a job in the world? Right, Alicia? You don't have to get a job. You can hang with me, right? Jacob has a good job. <laughs> me and maybe. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Boys and girls, there's a difference. Mm -hmm. But don't settle. Lot settled. Lot said, ah, oh, that's the great, that's where I want to be. Abraham's like, all right, you can go there, I'll go wherever. I know God's going to bless it. Lot settled, and eventually what? He ended up in Sodom, and he had to be dragged out, and his family died. Right before it burned. You know, seek first, Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, God's going to settle us where he wills, and we're going to have our heart's desire. You know, this is a hard saying. I believe John Corson said it. Love God and do what you want. I've been wrestling with that lately. What does that mean? If I love God and I do what I want, that means I'm going to do what he wants. And if I love him, I'm going to do what he wants. But does that mean if I love him right now, the desires he's giving me, could they be his desires? If I do what the desires are he's giving me, does that mean I'm doing what I want and loving God? Could these desires be of God? Are they not? And that's the trick. And that's why we need the scripture, because the scripture cuts between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and will quickly light up the desires of your life as either holy or unholy, or even just simply best and not best. It says, we've got a little more to go, but it says, he was not, and I, that word really isn't there in the scripture, it's just God, and I think it's giving a context here, that he literally disappeared. That Enoch disappeared. He walked with God, and boop, he was gone. It wasn't just like a cutesy saying, he was not, you know, he died or whatever, but he wasn't there anymore. Um, you know, they didn't have GPS or that tracking thing you can get for old people or kids at Legoland where you know where your kids are at all times. Um, but God took him. That word means to take, take in hand, carry along, take up, take out, seize, fetch, procure, take possession of. I like that one. Capture, taken away, removed. You know, the list goes on. That God took Enoch. Enoch and God were walking. Hey, where are we going? God goes, heaven. 
you know, and they go, and they're gone. I think it's awesome. You know, First Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, that caught up is where we get rapture. It's harpazo in the Greek. It's rapturos in the Latin. That as we walk with God, there's a possibility, especially in these last days, that we won't die. I, I like that, especially driving on the throughway from time to time. I would like that not to be the place where I go to heaven, <laughs> unless it's the rapture. But sincerely, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words, that the thought of the rapture, the thought of meeting those who have died before us in the air with God, that should comfort us. And I think here, too, the story of Enoch walking with God and being taken should comfort us, especially seeing that we're going to get to Noah um, here. But let's, uh, let's read on these last few verses, and I'll try and close out as quickly as possible. Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. It's not the same guy. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. That's old. Lamech lived 182 years and he had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years had sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We see here it's a different Lamech, but it means the same, it's powerful. It's interesting here because one guy's line ended, and the others saved humanity and all the animals. We have vain power of Lamech we saw in the last chapter, versus godly power in this Lamech uh, where Noah is born. And I think that we can have the same name, but be a totally different person. Maybe you have the name of your father or your ancestor, but you're a different person. Maybe you've got the same name as some uh, dictator or president, but you're a different person. But I think also, as we talked about sanctification before, made in the image of God, we can be made into the, you know, insert your name here, picture of God he intended. That before Christ, we were a different version of Tim, or Mario, or Pagel, or Ashley, or whatever your name is. That we were a different version. Same name, but you're now a different person. And I think here, too, that it's interesting that, you know, your name and your lineage aren't going to get you anywhere. It's who you know. Do you know God, and do you trust God? You know, you're not born a Christian. You have to be born again a Christian. And that we can't make our own name. You know, you can read on the Internet about your family crest, your history, but, you know, can you really believe, you know, Facebook post? I don't know. Um, some, yes, but not all. But here we see that Noah was born, and if you look at the chart, he's not very far from Adam. We see that Seth died 14 years, I believe it was, before Noah. And Enosh, or Enos, uh, Adam's grandson, could have told Noah all about the garden. You know, if he wasn't senile, they overlapped. He could have, he could have sat on Enosh's lap for a few years. He could have been 20 years old, maybe. I'm not I'm just guessing by looking at the dates. I'm not looking at the exact numbers there. But they could have talked. You know, Lamech felt the burden of sin, the work of their hands, the curse of the ground. He knew that God would use his son, and he named him Noah. I love that, you know, God gave me words about our kids and what to name them here. Um, but he did that here for Lamech. But I think similar to how the Jews missed Jesus and the real intent of the scripture, I think that they were somehow looking to Noah to save them in another way. You know, I'm sure they didn't picture the end of the world really happening. I'm sure he thought maybe Noah was going to rescue them in a different way. 
Uh, it probably never crossed their minds that the world was going to be flooded. It never rained before. Even when it said it rained, they were like, what is going on? <laughs> um, but I think we struggle with the same way today. You know, God will make, will take, we think God will take away our troubles, our tears, our trials, and that a Christian or godly life won't have those struggles in it. You know, some of uh, the same conversation talking about, like, you know, the moving and the trials I had in Maryland with neighbors and stuff. And I'm like, that, it doesn't actually mean one thing or the other, other than the fact that, you know, God's going to be with me in them. And that we are going to face trials, that our lives are not going to be perfect and trial free as believers. Uh, you know, it, the scripture says it's going to wipe away our tears, and that means that there's going to be tears on our face when we get to heaven. Probably tears of joy, but also tears of like, oh man, I just experienced something awful on earth. And God has to wipe that away because we're still on earth. That life is going to be painful. You know, Jesus said that if, in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him desire deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That whoever wants to keep his life has to lose it. But there's going to be painful things. Like carrying a cross is not just wearing a gold cross. It's carrying something heavy, something burdensome, something that's going to hurt you um, for the work of God. It's being a living sacrifice. You know, losing what you want can be painful. You know, losing relationships or friendships or a job or whatever it is or a dream or a desire that's just not the best for you, even if it is maybe, it's painful. But what God always provides in His place is always worth the pain. You know, they talk about childbirth, the picture in Scripture that it's worth the pain. I, I don't know, I was kind of there, you know, hanging out, drinking my milkshake. <laughs> but I guarantee that, you know, uh, it was worth it. It was worth it, even with surgery and the pain being different. But they looked to Noah for comfort. But I think here in this scripture, in this genealogy, God wants us to see that Enoch was the real comfort. That, yeah, Noah would save them, but the fact that Enoch, before the Messiah came, had a right relationship with God. That Enoch was able to walk with God, able to go home with God, not because he was something special, but because he understood something. That God loved him and God wanted to walk with him. And that he just had to go to God. And I'm sure there were sacrifices and other things involved in Enoch's life. And his life was a picture sort of like um, Abel's of making the right sacrifice and understanding that the Messiah had to come. I'm sure that was involved. But sincerely, out of this whole lineage, he's the guy who walks with God. It doesn't say these other guys necessarily walk with God. They're just involved in the lineage. I think that Enoch is the comfort there. That, that even before all that judgment, even though Noah was going to lead people through the judgment, that God would protect them through the judgment, that God said... I've got an even greater way than that. I want to take you completely out of the way of judgment. And that's Enoch. That's Enoch. You know, Revelation talks uh, to the church in the last days, and I'm going to read this and we're going to close. Uh, the church, the angel of Philadelphia, right, in 3.7, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, I've kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of my city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that God says to the church of Philadelphia, who is weak, but held on to the Scriptures, who is in the last days, but did not turn away from God's word, 
but held on. He said, I loved you. I've loved you. And that's the same thing with Enoch. He held on to God's word. He trusted God. He did not turn away. Because if Noah's coming, and we see this lineage here, by this time, and God says in Noah's days that the thoughts of men are wicked continually, I have to destroy them, it means that there's a lot of people on the earth, and there's a lot of wickedness on the earth, and yet Enoch was still living righteously, and Noah did too. But the church of the rapture is a promise to those who have overcome, that we need to hold fast. That yeah, it's not a work, but sincerely, we don't want to fall away. We don't want to fall away. As we close here, you know, there, I think in some sense there's a story in some of these names here. I got this from Quinnia House. That's not all the names, but it says Adam was man, Seth appointed, Enosh was mortal, Kenan was sorrow, Mahalalel was the blessed of God, Jared shall come down, Enoch teaching, Methuselah his death shall bring, Lamech the despairing, and Noah rest your comfort. So if you read that, it says, Man appointed, mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Again, don't want to read too much into that, but I know God puts meanings and names and did this on purpose to point us. You know, the fact that here, even at the end, that Noah begot three sons. It wasn't just one son for the lineage, but Noah gets three sons for the lineage. Shem means name. He was the oldest son. The Semitic tribes come from him. Ham means hot. Southern lands. I don't know if that's just they knew they were going to go live in the hot place. I don't know. Uh, Japheth opened. You know, they live in Mediterranean, Europe, and Asia. But I think we too each have significance in the salvation story. Not leading up to it, obviously, but leading from it and leading others to it. And I think in these last days especially, we need to hold on tight to the upward call that we can't settle for less. Because settling for anything less than these days is usually settling for something that's pretty awful. You know, there's really, when it comes to right and wrong, right is like this very tiny sliver nowadays, and wrong is... It's pretty big. I think that, you know, why should we sell it for less? Because God is something better in store. Amen? God, we bless your name. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and for uh, having Enoch walk with you and Noah be the one to, to save humanity and animals. God, uh, really, you did that. You used his obedience and put him on that boat. And God, I pray you would use us in these last days. You'd help us be strong, help the church be strong. Help those who are lost and confused about even their own identity. God, to come and find their identity in you uh, by your spirit. Because, God, you love them. We love them. We thank you for that, God. Bless your name today. In Jesus' name. Amen.